My name is Michael Albert, and this is the 103rd episode of the podcast titled Revolution Z. Our topic this time is voters' motives and the left agenda in the recent election. It is based on a Collective 20 article of the same name. Collective 20, remember, is a group of writers publishing collectively under the name Collective 20. The members of this collective writing group are Andrzej Grubyshek, Brett Wilkins, Bridget Meehan, Cynthia Peters, Don Rojas, Elena Harada, Emily Jones, Justin Podor, Mark Evans, Medea Benjamin, myself, Noam Chomsky, Oscar Chacon, Peter Bomer, Savina Choudhury, and Vincent Emanuele. Collective 20 has jointly, collectively, authored 18 articles. Honestly, I have thought such a group publishing together collectively would attract considerable notice with their joint essays being widely reprinted, but that hasn't happened so far. Here, however, on Revolution Z, I have taken to presenting much of their, our, work in a sequence of episodes labeled C20. They also all appear on Znet, and of course on the Collective 20 website, which is at Collective 20, that's one word, no, no space there, collective20.org, and it's 2O, so it's collective20.org. I hope you will give it a visit. So here, now, is their most recent contribution, with some interjections from myself as well. Their article, Voters' Motives and the Left Agenda, begins, Some things are utterly obvious. We will not solve the face-off between proto-fascism and progressive, much less revolutionary aspirations by compromise. We will not arrive at good outcomes by accommodating to vile views. Democratic Party elites say, accommodate them, compromise with them, don't challenge them, break bread with them. Hopefully, all leftists realize that such a choice would be a road to calamity. Hopefully, we also realize that to block liberals' inclinations to accommodate Republican earth-burning requires holding the liberals accountable to the actual needs of society and the world. I interject. I feel confident most or all Revolution Z listeners agree. And Collective 20 continues. On the left, we therefore shouldn't passively hope against hope that public officials will serve humane priorities. We should grow our organized, informed activist power to force the outcomes we desire. We should grow our numbers as well as solidify and act on our commitments with our current numbers. But to grow our numbers, we must reach out to new people. And new people means people who aren't already rushing to join us. It means people who up until now haven't found us compelling or attractive. It even means people who have found us repellent. And I have to interject. At this point, some actually disagree. And so, Collective 20 continues. But the entreaty to reach outside our comfort zones to people who don't like us, and even to people who dislike or hate us, does not say that we should look at Trump and look at his agendas and at his words and compromise with that. It does not say we should look for some middle ground between Trump's vicious view of reality and our own feminist, anti-racist, and anti-classist view of reality. It says instead that we should talk not with Trump, an absurd and suicidal project, but with some subset of people who voted for Trump, not with his rich supporters, not with his overtly, religiously, outrageously, and most aggressively racist and sexist supporters. I have to interject that even trying some of that makes sense to me, but Collective 20 continues. 
But we should talk with his working-class supporters, who are rightly hostile to existing relations, who rightly mistrust mainstream institutions, who continually suffer real and severe harm, and who try to make choices to alleviate that harm. We should reach out to them to grow our numbers sufficiently to develop an overwhelmingly majoritarian, informed, self-conscious, committed movement to win fundamental positive change. I interject. You might think to yourself, where is this going? No one could disagree with that. But Collective 20 thinks otherwise, and continues, Contrary to the above perspective, many left commentators say, or appear to say, that to welcome a subset of Trump's supporters into progressive and left activism will compromise our principles. It will forsake the constituencies we can better reach. And are those outcomes possible? Yes, they are. But are those paths inevitable? No, they are not. Can we avoid those outcomes and instead bring new people to left commitments while we maintain our principles, projects, and aims? We think we can and we must. But I interject, are there really such people to reach out to? And C20 accommodates the query by continuing. But do there in fact exist Trump voters who progressive and left organizers can plausibly break bread with without compromising away our aims, values, and integrity? And C20 continues, about two-thirds of age-eligible U.S. voters voted in 2020. Somewhat less than one-third voted for Trump. Somewhat more than one-third voted for Biden. That Biden won the Electoral College by a bare sliver of votes in a few swing states is monumental in our win-lose system. He will replace Trump as president. But as an indicator of the views of the country, the election would have been little different had just 10,500 ballots in Arizona, 14,100 in Georgia, and 20,600 in Wisconsin been marked for Trump, not for Biden, so that Trump won. And I have to interject, look at those numbers again. 45,200 votes difference, which means that had that number of Biden voters in three swing states stayed home or voted third party, Trump would have won. Indeed, if 22,600 votes out of Biden's in those states had voted for Trump instead of for Biden, four more years of Trump. Close call doesn't begin to describe it. C20 continues. Roughly 55% of white women who voted voted for Trump. Nearly 60% of white men also did so. It was a higher percentage of white women, but a lower percentage of white men than in 2016. Rounding off, over one-third of eligible white voters voted for Trump. That's a lot, but it is certainly very far from all white voters. I interject, but why? And C20 hits stride continuing. One motive for such votes is that over one-third like, or even love, Donald Trump, and all that he and the Republican Party stand for and have done. This motive would suggest that such voters are incredibly ignorant, delusional about the implications of Donald Trump having a second term, or self-consciously and aggressively imperialist, classist, racist, and sexist in the worst degree, like Donald Trump. At the same time, somewhat under one-third of white voters of voting age voted for Joe Biden. Is there an analog to the above effort to explain Trump voters? We think there is. We might call this approach, assume the worst, and if analogously to an increasingly prevalent way of thinking about Trump's voters' motives, we rule out any motives other than the worst for Biden's voters, then what do we get for Biden voters? 
we would say one motive for Biden voters is liking or even loving Joe Biden and all that he and the Democratic Party stand for and have done. This motive would tend to suggest that these voters are incredibly ignorant, delusional about Joe Biden's commitments, or self-consciously and aggressively imperialist, classist, racist, and sexist in the worst, or, at best, in nearly the worst degree, like Joe Biden. Staying with Biden voters for a minute, C-20 continues, are there possible explanations for Biden's votes other than the worst-case one offered? For example, thinking that Biden can serve the rich better than Trump while arousing less public opposition. Hating Trump more than disliking or hating Biden. Thinking that however bad Biden is, Biden, for one reason or another, may break with some deadly patterns. Thinking that on most issues it makes no difference, but on one or two, fighting COVID-19, opposing gun violence, defending abortion rights, being dignified enough to make a difference, or whatever, Biden will be reliably better. So in light of these additional possible motives for voting for Biden, if we had the means, which we doubt, we could ask, okay, is about one-third of the white population in like or in love with Biden? Or did a significant percentage of those who voted for Biden simply hate Trump more? Or think Biden might be more likely to break with some hated policies? Or think that it makes little difference in many respects, but where there is a difference, say regarding abortion rights or curbing police violence or appearing sane, Biden might be significantly better? Lacking answers to those possibilities, would it serve any good purpose to talk about all Biden voters as Biden lovers, as Biden wannabes, and as unreachable, including seeking to defend the basic relations of society on behalf of the rich and powerful, as does Biden? For these commentators, not even decades of history of seeking to change the basic relations of society on behalf of the poor and disempowered mattered to their assessment. If you vote Biden, they intoned or implied, you reveal that you are in the camp of wealth and power. Others on the left, including myself, I interject, said, wait a minute, it is perfectly possible for a motive other than comprehensive agreement with Biden to cause a vote for Biden. Those commentators argued that life and politics are more complex than they are simplistic, and likewise for motives. Back to those who voted for Trump. What is the analog of there being multiple possible motives to vote for Biden regarding motives to vote for Trump? C-20 answers. Thinking Trump will better enrich the rich. Hating Biden more than disliking or hating Trump. Thinking that however bad he is, Trump, for one reason or another, may break with some deadly patterns. Thinking that on most issues it makes no difference, but on one or two issues, opening the economy rather than locking it down, preserving gun ownership, repealing abortion rights, or being wild enough to make a difference, or whatever, Trump will be reliably better. So we are confused, says C-20, continuing. Why are some left writers rushing to judgment regarding Trump's white, and particularly his white working class, supporters? Why can many of the folks rushing to judgment understand that people could vote for Biden for non-imperial reasons, but not understand that people can vote for Trump for non-white supremacist, misogynistic reasons? We think, says C-20, the reply that some would give is that Trump is just so disgusting that to not be repulsed enough to not vote for him means you don't feel repulsed by his repulsiveness, which in turn means you abide it or you even support it. But even for Trump voters, 
who are more deluded than Biden voters in that they buy Trump's racist explanations for their problems. Shouldn't the delusion elicit calls for education, not derision? More, what if you voted, for example, for Obama, and then watched your life in your community and your prospects decline and even collapse? And so you hated liberals for lying to you. You hated liberals for selling you out. And what if your legitimate needs had been violated over and over? And hoping against hope, you thought this new guy, Trump, seemingly oblivious to pressure and willing to be wild, had, in your eyes, actually been improving the economy until the virus struck. And what if you think regarding the virus, he was actually on your side, trying to keep the economy running? You would be wrong, of course, but couldn't it be that you didn't cast your vote to bash blacks or women, but to protect your family in neighborhood from hated Democrats, albeit deceived about your prospects of under four more years of Trump? No, some say. It couldn't be that, because the only way you could feel thus is if you discounted black lives and women's well-being to zero. And I interject, I have heard that over and over, and C-20 offers a response. But go back, says C-20, to the Biden voters. Again, the same line of thinking could be applied. How could anyone vote for this defender of imperial violence and black subjugation unless they were blind to his history? Well, one can. Just as one can say, Trump's racism is repellent, his misogyny is vile, his tweets are embarrassing, and I voted for him, and that should tell you how I feel about Joe Biden. Is motivational nuance, even from a position of confusion, not possible? And is the hatred that Trump voters feel for the establishment horrible, or is it warranted and aware? What about the fifth of black male voters and the tenth of black female voters and the nearly one-third of Latinx voters who voted for Trump? Are they, too, on that account, supporters of white supremacy and misogyny? If they can have, and they certainly did have, other motives, why can't that be true as well, not for every white voter for Trump, but for some, and maybe even for most? We have not heard anyone argue that blacks or Latinx voting for Trump loved his racism. Is deciding that all Trump's white voters are white supremacy-loving, misogynistic Trumpites logically as unjustified as deeming all Biden's voters imperial-loving Bidenites? What about Trump voters who would have preferred to vote for Sanders? Should we dismiss such people, causing them to feel their only home is with lying reactionaries? Why aren't pundits entertaining and wondering at the prevalence of voting for Trump because you hate Biden more, or because of what Democrats have in fact done to you, or because of confusions about what Trump has done? Does the rush toward the conclusion that 74 million Trump voters are all little Trumps rest on confused reasoning? Does the conclusion have some desirable implication that is propelling its acceptance despite grossly insufficient evidence? C-20 winds up the case by writing, Back to the need to reach out. To urge the need to reach out does not ask progressives to jettison the agenda of those violated by police violence, systemic racism, and ubiquitous patriarchy so as to be able to break bread with Trump, with his rich and powerful buddies, or with his most racist and misogynistic voters, at the expense of solidifying, enlarging, and deepening support where it already exists. It instead asks progressives to think seriously about how we talk, the demands we advocate, and the structures we develop 
in light of the fact that it is absolutely essential to reach tens of millions of white working class people to show how our aims would benefit them and how our structures would elevate them. As we finish writing this, The Intercept reports that, quote, defeated Trump campaign tells supporters the left hates you in fundraising emails sent to Trump lists. For leftwards to give credence to that claim is not a winning plan. So what is a winning plan? Of course, the abstract advisory to reach out effectively is one thing, while practical actions to do so are another. How do we make uncompromising demands about, talk effectively about, and thus reach out about rural and urban working class grievances in ways that speak to felt needs and that accurately address prevalent worries about racist police violence, about stunted health care, about obscene income inequality, about war-making international relations, about suicidal climate calamity, about COVID, and more. Maybe that would be a better focus for our attention than rushing to dismiss 74 million voters. I think Collective 20 has a damn good point. What do you think? Finally, I urge you to please visit www.patreon.com slash revolutionz, where you can help Revolution Z by becoming a patron. And that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.